there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Mom? Where are you? There you are. What are you sitting here all alone for? It's cold and creepy. It's not creepy, Teresa. This is our home, isn't it? I'm sorry. You're right. The police are coming by again tonight. To what end? To tell me I'm wrong? That I'm losing my head? That I don't know who my girls really are? It might be time to consider that they're right. That Barbara and Patricia really did run away. You believe that, Teresa? I... I can't bring myself to imagine anything worse. They would have never done that. They were loving girls. They were loved girls. They were my daughters. They were my sisters, though, Mom. And they were young, dumb, full of impossible hopes and dreams. You're 17, Teresa. Do not pretend to be above it all. All I'm saying, Barbara and Patricia did not want to stay here forever. None of us do. And after what happened to Leona, it changed all of us. Please, I can only handle one tragedy at a time, Teresa. Someone from St. Maurice also rang. They've put together a charity fund. They talk behind our backs, you know. Not all of them, Mom. Enough of them. We could use the money to fix this goddamn kitchen, at least. Do not curse God, Teresa. Why the hell not? Feels like he's cursed us. Please. I can't face anyone today. Can you speak with any visitor that comes by? Tell them I pass on profound thanks for any assistance, and I I pray for them as well. Okay, Mama. I can do that. Will you bring down the girls' records? Why? I want to listen to them. I want to hear them. If you're telling me that they had secret lives, maybe this will help. Maybe this will lead me back to them. Maybe they'll hear it themselves and come back to me. <laughs> Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Our investigation today turns back time to a frozen winter in Chicago, when the entire city was thrown into a state of shock. In late December 1956, two poor girls from the neighborhood of Brighton Park went missing on the dawn of the new year. The entire city went mad with grief and speculation. Gossip spread like wildfire and the Chicago police would invoke a massive manhunt, conducting over 300,000 interviews and sorting through hordes of dubious witnesses and suspects. Sadly, in the modern world, the simple disappearance of two young women, with no higher connection to society or culture at large, might quietly go unnoticed by most of the country. But before the next decade radicalized this country's culture forever, 
The 1950s were supposed to mean the end of such pointless violence and the beginning of Pax Americana. It was a time when teenagers should have been safe to take a walk to see their favorite movie down at the theater and make it home in time to spend the end of the holidays with their loving family. The revelation of this illusion broke Chicago's heart and the pain spread outward throughout the nation like a plague. But at its epicenter was one mother who would never stop looking for the truth and who would never stop being tormented by how elusive it would always prove to be. This is the story of one family's loss of innocence. It is also the story of a city's reckoning with both its darker impulses and its capacity for hope. This is the story of the murders of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. This is episode 34 of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories and the first installment of the Grimes Sisters Murders. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Now, let's head back to the modest Brighton Park home of the Grimes family. The year was 1956. Get downstairs. Mom, they're hiding in their room listening to that damn record over and over. Watch your mouth, Joey. Sorry, it's the truth, though. Isn't it, James? That's right, Mommy. They're obsessed. They're coming, Mom. I confiscated their music. Three, two... Teresa, Teresa, that's that's not not fair. fair. There, my lovelies. Mom, Teresa took away our music. Barbara and I paid for that with our chore money. Fair and square. Is that right? Let me see this thing. Hmm, Elvis Presley, huh? Quite a name. Mom! Don't be ridiculous! You know Elvis. You took us to his movie last week. Oh, the cowboy lad? He was just acting like a cowboy. He's really a guitarist. And a singer. Remember the song from the movie? I recall it being rather silly. The man's handsome, but he looks mad in those clothes. He looks gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I've heard enough about Elvis for one lifetime. Don't pretend I didn't see you dancing to him the other night. (laughs) Mom! All right, all right, enough Elvis before breakfast. You'll get this back after you scrub the floors. That's not fair! Let me remind you that your chore money is actually my money. The money I make working long hours away from my precious little people every day. I think Elvis would understand. Yuck! Mom! Are you sure we can't listen to him while we mop up? Use your imagination. Now eat. I'll see you tonight. Take care of yourselves. Bye, Bye, Mom! Mom. The Grimes were not wealthy, but they had enough to get by in the fairly suburban neighborhood of Brighton Park. A house in an area like this all but guaranteed an idyllic enough situation for white working-class families. At least, that's the dream Loretta Grimes, matriarch and provider, was counting on. It had been a rough few years for Loretta. Her marriage to Joseph Grimes, a truck driver, ended in 1951. Three years later, her eldest daughter, Leona, died after a battle with an unnamed illness. Still, Loretta pushed onward for the sake of her remaining five children. Loretta worked every day, most weekends included. She expected the kids to hold up their end of the bargain, and without fail, they did so. Barbara and Patricia in particular have been singled out in later reports as good-spirited and positive young women. In later deposition, Teresa's friend Rosemary Choder had this to say. And the Grimes sisters in question, Barbara and Patricia, they never seemed off or degenerate in any way to you? Degenerate? Are you kidding me? They were nice, ordinary little girls. 
poor and happy. We all were. Their mother assigned them housework and they would do it with a smile. We used to pour soapy water all over the floors and slide around in our bare feet, giggling. Silly little kid stuff, you know? And like any typical teenage girls, these two had an affinity and a passion for the rising youth movement of the time, spearheaded by their idol, Elvis. So, Mother, did you have a good day at work? Why, yes, Barbara, I did. Thank you for asking. And Mother, did you like the way the floors look when you got home? I must admit they were sparkling, fit for a queen. A queen like yourself. All right, what is it exactly that you want? I already gave you that record back. <laughs> Three guesses. And the first two don't count. Oh, hush, Joey. Mother, Patricia and I were just hoping to use our chore money from this week to go out to the pictures. Back to Brighton Theater again? We're not sure if it's the last week for Elvis's double feature or not. Tell Mother how many times you've seen that nonsense by now. Teresa, stop thwarting us just because you're jealous. Of your imaginary relationship with Mr. Presley. Mother, please. Can't you see how Teresa and Joey taunt us all day? Should we really be punished just for respecting Elvis's talent? Oh, that's what you're respecting, isn't it? I don't taunt them, Mama! Okay, that's enough racket for tonight. Ugh, if it will allow us to have a normal family dinner tonight, you can go. But you come right home after the second feature. Thank, Thank you, Mom. you, Mom! This will be their 13th viewing. Good Lord! <laughs> Again, in 1956, no parent in a neighborhood like Brighton Park ever bat an eye if their children walked out the door alone into the night. The theater was barely a mile and a half from the Grimes' house. They stepped out of the house with $2.15 between them, enough for the cost of admission, some popcorn, and possibly a bus ride. They arrived at Brighton Theater around 7.30, just in time for the opening act of the double feature, Elvis Presley's first feature film, Love Me Tender. Let me Stop! <laughs> You're even embarrassing me. <laughs> yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. Okay, sister, we've got enough for one more bucket of popcorn. We might have to walk home, though. Worth it in my book. Hey, Barbara. Patricia. Hey, Dorothy. You staying for the second feature? No, I think we're headed home. Barbara and I need some time to cool down. Gross, Patricia. <laughs> Oh, you know you like him. Yeah, well, not enough to stay for that second stinker. You two enjoy yourselves. Night, Dot. Next in line. Last chance, Patty. What do you say? Popcorn or no popcorn? Popcorn. Popcorn it is. Even if it means walking home. Show starts in seven minutes. So the double feature soon ended, and the girls exited Brighton Theater into the Chicago night, still whistling the tunes of their beloved idol. And Dorothy Weiner became the last known person to have a true confirmed sighting of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, let's continue our story. Joey! Joey! What, Mom? What time is it now? It's nearly midnight, Mom. Midnight? Midnight? Mother, please, don't worry. Where are they, Teresa? They're nearly half an hour late. Oh, you know girls. I know my girls, and my girls aren't late. Tell me, Teresa, would you be late when you were their age? Even ten minutes? Well, no, not after Leona. They know. Barbara, at least. She knows what the rules mean in this house. Even if Elvis is involved. 
Teresa, I need you and Joey to go look for them. Go to the bus stop. Wait for them. The, the bus must be late. That must be it. Please hurry. Go to the bus stop. You heard her, Joey. Let's go. I'm so tired. Now, mister. Out they went to the nearest bus pickup, only a few stops away from the Brighton Theater. That's number two. I'm cold, Teresa. You know those two goofs are prancing about somewhere with their friends singing and dancing while we freeze our asses off. Stop that, Joey. What do you know? Two buses and they're nowhere in sight. Oh, good God. You're right, Teresa. They must be frozen at this point. Do not even joke about that, you little bastard. You wish. Look, here comes another one. If they're not on this... Then we're really in trouble. (laughs) Teresa, you don't really think they're in trouble, do you? Barbara and Patricia? How much trouble could they possibly get into? There's no use talking about it, Joey. You sound worried. You're never worried. I just don't know, Joey. I'm sure they're on this bus. I'm sure of it. Oh, oh yeah, look. There are people on there. It looks like them. Really? Pat, Babs, come on. There you are. Joey. No. That's three. What do we do, Teresa? We need to tell Mom. Something's happened to them. If only that sense of dread was misplaced. What could have been an everyday misunderstanding was beginning to reveal itself as a much graver problem. Teresa and Joey Grimes rushed home to Loretta and told her what they thought. Something was badly wrong. No. Oh, oh God, no. Mom, I'm so sorry. This can't be happening. After midnight, around 2.15 a.m. on what was now December 29th, Loretta Grimes reported Barbara and Patricia missing. And so began a period of despair that for Loretta would last for the rest of her life. And for the investigators of Chicago, a lifelong journey into the very heart of uncertainty. As the sun dawned on the 29th and the police began their missing persons investigations, the first of many sightings began to pour in. So you can confirm for us that around 8.30 on December the 28th, you saw both of the Grimes sisters out at the Brighton Theater. Yes, they were both in line for popcorn, happy as can be. And they did not share with you any plans to leave home behind or go anywhere after the double feature concluded? Well, no. Barbara and Patricia were good girls. The only reason they were out in the first place was to see Elvis. These two never seemed like the type of girls to, pardon my expression, but wander? Oh, I know. Of course not. Where on earth would they go? Exactly the one thing no one could determine. It was a bit of a paradox. While there was an ideal of 1950s teenagers, there was also the encroaching image of the rebellious youngster on the rise. The teen who would hide their true self from their parents, existing as someone completely different when the moon rose and they left all signs of parental authority behind. For the police, the question became, what kind of girls were the Grimes sisters, really? My girls are good girls. They would never run away from me by choice. They were not unhappy in their lives here. Investigators were less certain. Perhaps Silver Screen dreams had gone too far, and Barbara and Patricia had become convinced their destiny lay elsewhere, far from the modest lifestyle that Brighton Park and Loretta Grimes provided for them. Within the first two weeks, they collected statements from witnesses across the city claiming to have spotted the girls in flight. Your name and occupation? Joe Smock, bus driver for the CTA, Chicago Transit Authority. Now, Mr. Smock, you claim to have seen the missing Grimes girls on the night of the 28th? Well, I can tell you what I did on the night of the 28th. I was on my usual route, 
Stopping at the Archer Avenue stop? I picked up two young girls that match your description. Near the Brighton Theater? Look, I don't spend a lot of time in the area, but yeah, I think it's near the theater. Always picking up young kids around those parts. And where did you take these two young girls? I figure I dropped them off pretty soon afterwards, near Western. Probably around uh, 11 o'clock. That'd be halfway to their home. Why would you figure that they would disembark there? How the hell would I know? But that's where those two girls, whoever they might have been, got off. Piecing together a rough timeline, the next consecutive testimony came from two local teenage boys, Ed Lorden and Earl Zastro. What time was it? Uh, must have been around 11 at that point. Right, Earl? I'd say 11.30. We're looking for precise times here, boys, so please, concentrate. Uh, 11.30. We were just driving around, wasting time before he had to go home. We see these two girls making their way east down 35th Street. That's about two blocks from the home of Loretta Grimes. Well, yeah, when we saw them, I remember us both saying, hey, it's those Grimes girls. How did the two girls appear? In good enough spirits. They were giggling and jumping out of doorways at each other. Did they appear in any way intoxicated? Oh, I wouldn't say that. But who knows? Zastro was the son of a local butcher, and the police would later pull him out of school and accuse him of hiding the girls' corpses in his father's meat freezers. One could tell they were getting desperate for leads trying to scare literal children into confessions. Please state your name and occupation for the record. Jack Franklin. I'm a security guard on the northwest side of the city. Uh, move around warehouses up there, on contract. And you're here to testify about seeing the two missing Grimes sisters on the night of the 28th. No, no, uh, morning of the 29th it was. Real early. They was walking right by my posting. How did they appear? It was bitter out. They looked cold as hell but in good enough spirits for two young souls up and about at such an hour. You interacted with them? Sure. They were asking directions. Directions? To where? Ward. Now that you mention it, I couldn't tell you for the life of me. They didn't seem in desperate straits, though. Just looking for a place to get a bite to eat, I'd say. Reports kept piling in. People sighted the girls all over, boarding buses on the 28th, walking around the city on the 29th. The rumor mill kicked into action. Without bodies, the police and eventually the public became convinced the two girls had run away from home. Two wild young things, inspired by the gyrations of Presley's hips, off to try their luck on the streets. This was of no comfort to Loretta Grimes, who couldn't picture her sweet young girls doing anything of the sort. Read all about it. The missing Grimes girls from Brighton Park. Where have they gone? Swept away by the night? Or have they themselves chosen to run away from the life chosen for them, chasing greener pastures out west? Police interviews are taking place day in and day out, from the city itself to outside counties. Jurisdictions have blended together and teamed up to stop this tragedy in motion. Congregants of St. Maurice, before the sermon, I need to make a special announcement. Two of our community members, Barbara and Patricia Grimes, have been missing since the night of December 28th. As God above, we must now show our love to the grieving family and lend assistance in any way possible. It is the covenant we have made as a community and a promise we have made to God himself by joining ourselves together under his name. Oh, this is a load of baloney. I hear those girls were miscreants anyways, obsessed with rock and roll. It's terrible. Their mother thinks that they were saints. But my boys said those girls used to lie to her and go running around the bars with all sorts of low lives. It was only a matter of time, in my opinion. Gathered together from the pockets of our congregation, 
St. Maurice has put together a $1,000 reward to anyone who can come forward with any information whatsoever involving our missing girls. <laughs> Typical. The wicked get rewarded. Shush your blasphemous, gossiping mouth, Martha. It's folks like you who ruin the good name of the church. Loretta is sitting right behind you. Oh. Oh my, Loretta. Well, of course, it's all hearsay, isn't it? That it is. But I prefer not talking during the sermons, don't you? It became very clear to Loretta that she was not going to be able to man this storm alone. She already had three more children to keep calm in the face of this calamity. Her whole community turning against her would spell the end. Luckily, the citizens of Chicago found within themselves a higher purpose. The community rose above its baser elements and instincts in many ways. Oh, this is a miserable winter. You can say that again, boss. After those boys a few years back, now this? Innocent little girls. People running wild, saying they were anything but. We got some good coverage down at the local Brighton Parish. They're doing some nice community organizing. Could be a good thing for the front page. Show everyone that people still care. Goodwill, unfortunately, does not front news make. So, we just rest on our laurels? No, goddammit, this is the Chicago Tribune. We need to be the eyes of the city. You're telling me the parish has put together some kind of reward? Sure, yeah, nothing too chunky. But I think they've collected together about a grand. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment, but won't get anyone of influence off their feet. I wish we could offer a whopper, but the board would kill me. Well, boss, how about this? We encourage the public to send in their personal evidence, sightings, clues, over 50 bucks a pop. Could encourage falsities. Could also encourage the unencouraged. And it would definitely encourage sales. Put it out, let's run it immediately. On a more grassroots level, the local kids and parents teamed up. Okay, Rebecca, turn around now. Parents gathered their kids and dressed them in the same style of clothing that the Grimes girls were wearing when they went missing. I can't even begin to thank you for this. Loretta, please. It's the absolute least we can do. We're going to find them. There's not a doubt in my mind. God will guide us all through this and watch over them wherever they are. <laughs> In tandem with the newspaper coverage, these photos were passed out to all of the civilian volunteers, spread across the many counties of Chicago, all on the hunt. Things dragged along like this into the new year. Police had begun tracking possible suspects, but without any evidence of what actually happened to Patricia and Barbara, the prevailing theory remained that they had run away of their own volition. Then, as the second week of 1959 encroached, Loretta Grimes checked the mail. Oh my God, T Teresa! Oh God, Teresa, please come quickly! Mom, Mom, read, read this for me. I can't, I, I can't bring myself to. Hello, Loretta Grimes. I am writing to inform you that I am. Oh, cry! Oh! I am writing to inform you that I am in possession of your two girls, Barbara and Patricia. Oh! This was only the first of a series of letters, each increasingly detailed and full of strange instructions. The FBI secretly met with Loretta in her home, the story being kept sealed away from the press and prying eyes. There you go, Agent Morrison. Thank you. Loretta, are you ready to go over this once again? It's important that we are all on the same page here. We take the train tomorrow. You take the train. We'll have eyes on you. 
but don't act as if you're protected. If they're watching, whoever they are, we want them to think you're alone. But surely they understand that I'm not. You'd be surprised what these fools commonly think. Please continue. The train will arrive in Milwaukee shortly. I'll exit and make my way downtown to the Catholic church listed on the letter. I'll sit in the fifth pew from the rear, alone, and I'll put down the envelope with $1,000 beside me. Very good. According to the ransom note, you will shortly see your daughter, Barbara. But do not touch her. We don't want to upset whoever has taken her. Just hand her the envelope. I know that may be hard to process, but you understand how crucial that step is, correct? I understand. If the letter is to be believed, Barbara will then exit the church once more. You must remain sitting. The two girls should arrive together shortly. You will quickly take them both out the rear exit, where we will be waiting to whisk you all away. Come now, girls. We can't dally. From there, we'll take care of the kidnapper, whoever they are. They were stupid enough to arrange a drop-off like this. The rest will be easy. Agent Morrison, do you promise me, do you swear to me that I'll have my daughters back safe? You do everything you just said, and this guy follows his own instructions? We're getting them back, all right. Where are you, Barbara? So on January 12th, over till Milwaukee, Loretta Grimes traveled. And in that church, she sat. For three hours, she waited. And no one, not Barbara, not Patricia, not a mysterious kidnapper, showed up. What do you people want? You keep coming back, but you don't have my daughters. You make me take a train at the crack of dawn out of town and sit around, agonizing for hours. And for what? For what? Mrs. Grimes, please. Do not patronize. Loretta, we do have news about where the letters really came from. And? Unfortunately, we were able to trace them back to a post office right outside of a mental hospital. No. It was oh. just one of their patients. They must have read about it in the papers, heard it on the radio, something. The case has made national waves, after all. So it was a lunatic. A patient. Yes, ma'am. We've thoroughly interviewed the patient and the staff. They have no direct involvement in the disappearance of your daughters. Loretta, are you okay? I heard you. They have no involvement. The letters are meaningless torture. As far as I'm concerned, you no longer have any need to be in my house. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Unintended cruelty from the mentally ill, whom, like the city itself, had become too caught up in the drama of it all. Loretta was heartbroken, and her confusion only mounted when the next sighting of the Grime sisters came from an unusual place. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, our story continues. Miss Neville. Please repeat your statement for the record. My name is Pearl Neville, originally of St. Paul, Minnesota. This January, I was visiting down in Nashville. Waiting in the train station, I came across two young girls. They seem much too young to be traveling on their own. And I asked them what they were doing in Nashville, and they told me they hoped to find work. Well, I just thought that sounded ridiculous, but I couldn't let them wander about on their own. I escorted the two cheery little things to the local employment office, but that's the last I saw of them. Well, if I had heard of the Grime Sisters earlier, oh, I hope I did the right thing. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
Miss Neville, did you ask the girls to identify themselves, or perhaps the employment office had them fill out any paperwork? Why, I can't remember clearly. I don't know if the office even let them apply for anything. But once I saw the article in the paper about the sisters, well, I do believe they went by Grimes when they stepped up to the administration desk. Well, I do believe they did. This testimony led investigators to more heavily consider the possibility that the girls were just reckless and uncaring runaways. Of course, Loretta viewed this all as a waste of time. She knew the girls couldn't have possibly gone to Tennessee without telling her anything first. She knew they couldn't have had the funds to even get there. But secretly, deep down, one must consider the idea that Loretta was beginning to think that she truly didn't know Barbara and Patricia as well as she thought. Perhaps these girls really were enigmas to her. The story was already spreading further out from the Midwest. But on January 19th, a national pronouncement arrived that would forever enshrine the Grimes sisters' mystery in national myth. Mom! Mom! Mom, you got to turn on the radio. Why? Just do it, Mom. And now, let us again repeat the message we just received, straight from the heart of Nashville. Graceland itself has spoken out on behalf of the missing Grimes sisters. Hello, Barbara. Patricia, if you're listening, this is Elvis Presley. I've heard all about what big fans the both of you are, and it warms my heart. But you've got everyone worried right now. If you truly are in Tennessee, I urge you both to get to the nearest phone. If you are good and loyal fans of mine, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. I know I wouldn't want to keep my mama in fear like this. Good Lord. I take back everything I've ever said about the man. If they hear that, they're going to lose their minds. Enough of this nonsense. But Mom... They aren't in Nashville, Teresa. They never have been. Elvis Presley can't do anything for them. Only God can now. And as if from on high, the phone calls arrived. The first two rang around midnight on January 14th in the Tolston House, family friends of the Grimes. Husband and father, Wallace Tolston, stumbled from bed. Yes, hello? Hello, this is Wallace Tolston. Is is there something you want? Well, alrighty then, have a nice night, jackass. Fifteen minutes later... You've got to be kidding me. Calm down, Wallace. I'll get it. With the second call, Ann Tolston picked up the line. Yes, this is the Tolston residence. Please, who is calling? Is this, is this Sandra? Sandra was Wallace and Ann's daughter, a school friend of the Grimes girls. Is that you, Sandra? Is Sandra there? Hold on a moment. Let me get Sandra. Just hold on, please. Hello? Please, hello? Stay on the line. Ann, what's going on? They're gone. Who was it? Wallace, I, I could have sworn that was Patricia Grimes. Unable to be tracked, these calls did nothing to further the investigation in a concrete way. But the timing would prove crucial to detectives' theories down the line. Then the following day, another call really got the attention of the police. Chicago police switchboard operator Ann Dorrigan, thinking it was a workday like any other, receives a unique call. You've reached the complaint line at Central Chicago PD. How may I direct your call? I need to make a very important report. It's regarding the disappearance of those two young girls. Oh, oh, first, sir, I need you to identify yourself. I, I, I can't do that right now. Uh, I just need to inform the police where the bodies are. Oh, oh my God, hold on. Get the detective. We need to trace this line immediately. 
Sir, are you claiming the Grimes sisters are dead? The bodies are going to be found in Santa Fe Park, in Lyons Township. Have you seen the bodies, sir? Are you in Santa Fe Park now? Yes, but no. I'm not in the park, but I've seen the poor girls. They're in the park. I saw it was so in my dreams. Uh, oh, um, okay. Please stay on the line, sir, for just a few moments more. This time, police did manage to track the caller. It came out of Green's Liquor Market on South Halstead Street. When officials arrived at the liquor store, they promptly identified the caller as 53-year-old Walter Krantz. State your name for the record. My name is Walter Kranz. The police could not get a good read on this guy. I work as a steam fitter at a local factory. Worked with piping all my life. The flow of steam. Always had intuitive sense about connections like that. And that's how you sorted out this mystery? Intuition. What my father called it, yeah. But I've taken to referring to it as what it really is. And that is? Psychic ability. You're a psychic. I dream of visions of reality. I've been hoping to get a glimpse of these girls the last few weeks. Taking walks all over, trying to get a sense for the trail they left. And that sense led you to Santa Fe Park. I dreamed of that big field there, empty. I saw pale forms floating on top of that green. Then they blew away in the wind, like vapor. Uh, that usual for these visions? Like I said, it's how I see things. Changeable. Always on the move through time and space. I can... I can snatch them out of the air. Visualize them. Fixate. And then what do you say to the fact that, after a very thorough search, we've pretty much determined that there isn't a single body in Santa Fe Park lying on the grass or under it? I'd be quite surprised. Are you sure? I'd say we're pretty sure, Walter. My premonitions, like I said, they drift around. Maybe somewhere else, uh, near the park, uh, or somewhere close. I promise, there's something there. You realize that this certainty, your claims of abilities, is not doing wonders for your alibi here, Walter. I didn't kill those girls. I just know they're gone. Just a matter of finding them now. <sighs> And in that, what a help you've been, Mr. Kranz. Police kept Walter around for quite some time, but eventually let him go. Aside from his premonition, there was little else tying him to the mystery of the girls. The search of Santa Fe Park was a bust. Hope grew dim on all accounts. Perhaps Barbara and Patricia really had turned to vapor, blown away in the winter wind. But one week later, on January 22nd, Leonard Prescott took a drive down German Church Road. Leonard, I don't see anything but snow. Is your mind playing tricks just so you don't have to do the shopping for me? Hold on, Marie. I promise, I, I swear. I was crossing right over Devil's Creek Bridge. Here we go. Look! Right over the edge there. There's nothing to see. I thought it might have been mannequins uh, tossed from some truck, but there! I don't... Oh... Dear God, you're right. Those have to be fake. I think... I think they're bodies, Marie. My eyes must be lying to me. Hold up, Marie. What? What is it? Oh God, I shouldn't have brought you out here. I thought there was something we could do, but... Let me get a closer look. Not a good idea, Marie. Ah! Sweetheart! 
no, no. Marie, give me your hand. Let me get you back to the car. Leonard, no, no, it can't be. It's them, isn't it? It must be them, those poor girls. Come on, let's get you back in the cab. I'll turn on the heat. I think I'm going to faint. My vision's blurring. Marie? Marie! Shit. Come on, sweetie. Wake up. It's them, all right. After all that trouble. Here they are. All along. Less than a mile from Santa Fe Park, the frozen bodies of Barbara and Patricia Grimes were finally uncovered. It was a grim morning as the emerging leaders of the investigation gathered at the scene. Dispatched by Cook County's coroner's office, Chief Investigator Harry Glows met up with Cook County Sheriff Joseph Lohman and his undersheriff, Thomas Brennan. These middle-aged men stood over the snow-dusted and battered Grimes girls, wondering how things could have ever gone this wrong. Sheriff Lohman, there you are, Harry. Uh, Walter told me you're on the way. Thomas, good morning, isn't it? Real funny, Glows. What's the noise so far, lads? It's going to tie everything up nicely for us? Sadly not, Harry. No obvious signs of death, aside from the elements. We're piling in for a long haul here. Afraid we just gotten started. Not so sure about that, Joe. We've got a strong contender in my eyes. It's that Kranz. What a goddamn creep. Probably got confused, forgot where he actually dropped them in some psychotic episode. Hmm. No way, Tom. Where's the real motivation? Guy may be odd, but he's no freak. Barely registers on the freak scale these days. So what's your big theory then, Harry? Come on, Joe, we've known for weeks. The kid they were seen with? That dirty drifter? Edward Lee Bedwell? What's he call himself again? Benny. Ah, that's right. Our Benny boy. And what makes you so sure of that fellow? We need to be asking ourselves. Why would these two sweet girls agree to get swept away by some fellow that late at night? You need to take a glance at this photo again? Here, use your peepers. Smarmy looking son of a bitch. You peek the resemblance, Joe? I'm not yet following. You know, Joe, he's right. Harry, you may be onto something. Oh, don't I know it. He looks just like that rock and roll hillbilly. And he's got that slick hair and everything. Harry Glow's theory wrapped both of the prevailing stories together. The girls were indeed murdered, but their passion for their idol might have had everything to do with it after all. Benny Bedwell, teenage drifter, rebel without a cause, prime suspect number one, looked just like a young Elvis Presley. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think, and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network, 
we thank you for listening. And hope you'll join us next Tuesday when we wade into the murky waters that still surrounded the mystery of the Grimes sisters' disappearances and the dark history of Chicago violence that served as an ominous forewarning of the poor girls' fates. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. <laughs> if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Jack Bentel. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Matt Cannon, Jerry Courtney Austin, Z Cruz, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Nicholas Massu, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>